0: This is Meditations for Misfits, and I'm Fred Well, Like so many major church conflicts, it all started with an offhand comment. My wife at the time, her name was Cindy, and the other wives of our church's leadership team were out for a celebratory meal, a Christmas do, I think it was called. And we were part of a leadership team in England for a small network of independent churches. I wasn't there, but as Cindy later told me, it seems the waitress serving them at this Christmas do had an unusual voice. And during the course of the meal, the other ladies began making fun of the waitress's voice. Now, Cindy told me she didn't think that was very Christian. And then all hell broke loose. The leader's wife took Cindy's comment as an offense and demanded an apology. Cindy refused. The meal ended abruptly, and Cindy came home in tears. As I say, I wasn't there. I don't know the tone of Cindy's comment. She was an incredibly kind and caring soul whose default mechanism was to avoid any kind of direct confrontation. But historically, when she'd been witness to a perceived injustice, she could get a bit of an edge. Maybe the other English ladies didn't appreciate an American calling attention to their unkind behavior. I don't know. What I do know is the incident marked the beginning of the end of our time in England. We'd been living in England for just over a year, and we'd already had to move three times. The last place we landed was a two-story dwelling on a street called Washington Close in Windsor, And as I remember, it was a very gray house. The exterior trim was painted white to offset the large brownish-gray stone construction. It had a small manageable yard or garden, as the English like to say. And the whole neighborhood was built on an ancient dump, dump site for Windsor Castle. So we all lived on a small hill. The ground, and therefore the foundation of the house, was shifting. None of the doors in the house could close without a lot of effort. Everything seemed to be just a little off-kilter, and that wasn't just with the house either. It just felt gray, and that was probably due in no small measure to the fact that it was at this house in Washington Close, after this Christmas due, that uh, Cindy entered a two-year deep, deep, deep depression. Now, looking back, it seems like it might have just been a harmonic convergence of a lot of unseen forces. We found out years later that it was right around that time Cindy's thyroid stopped working. And one of the major symptoms for uh, that condition is depression. We were also living in a foreign culture, sharing a common language, but separated by a very different worldview. Added to all of this was the reality that we just simply weren't a good fit for this network of churches. Now, don't misunderstand. They were not bad people. In fact, in many ways, they were very loving, kind, and passionate about serving God. And the major difference was between the the leader's idea and my idea of authority. Well, after the dew blow up, Cindy didn't want to go to church anymore. And as you could well imagine, that didn't go down very well with the team. And the team leader demanded that I rule my wife and force her to attend church meetings. I was sitting near here and right now as I tell you about this. I know it sounds harsh, and I don't mean to portray it that way. He was a good man who just saw things from a very different perspective than I do or did. I'm sure if you talked to him about how all this came about, he'd, he'd have a very different recollection of all these events. But at any rate, I felt as I've, I was being torn in two, I felt a great loyalty to this team of pastors. They were some of the best friends I have ever had in my whole life. And we were working together for causes I passionately believed in. On the other hand, here was this woman that I loved, my wife, my partner of twelve years, who was in intense pain, and I couldn't do a damn thing to make it better. We prayed, oh God, how we prayed for relief. We cried. Cindy went for counseling. We tried. Uh, we we cried some more. My own self-doubt and sense of failure were absolutely debilitating. Was I responsible for her depression? What kind of husband? was I? What kind of Christian minister was I? Well, the turning point for me came oddly enough one afternoon when I was watching a movie. Uh, It was on TV. It was called In Search of Bobby Fisher. Cindy was taking a nap in the bedroom. I was at the height of my own confusion and indecision. And in the movie, Joe Montagna, who plays the father of a child prodigy chess player named Josh. Now, Josh's, Josh's chess teacher It was played by Ken Ben Kingsley the the famous English actor and he saw the brilliance in Josh and wanted to push Josh as hard as possible to become a world-class chess champion Kingsley wanted to rule Josh now Montagna on the other hand simply wanted his son uh, to have fun and allow him to enjoy his childhood which he did In the end, Josh does win the big chess tournament in the movie and gets to enjoy his life. And watching the film alone, on that little TV in the drawing room on Washington Close, I felt like it was a divine communication from God. Cindy was Josh, Ben Kingsley was our team leader, and I was Joe Montagna, whose name in the movie, by the way, was Fred. Now, the message to me was clear. Cindy did not need to be ruled. She needed to be loved and affirmed and given space to find her own equilibrium. And I was just the guy to do it. I've never once regretted that decision. Well, now, to help alleviate my own pain and suffering during this time, I started to ride a stationary bicycle. I was obsessive about it every, every day for an hour. I'd sit atop that bike in a tiny upstairs spare bedroom, blankly staring out the window into the deserted gray cul-de-sac and ride like a man possessed. This, This went on for months. I fell out of favor, and I want to say not blamelessly, within the church network have a long history of, of not behaving well when I'm told what to do, and so we were labeled as rebellious, which in that time and place was the unpardonable sin. We were foreigners, all alone in a strange land, and that bike was like my only place of refuge. I remember I'd been invited to speak at a gathering of church leaders at a missions conference during that time, and I really had nothing to say. I was afraid, overwhelmed, angry, and alone. Now, the Friday before the conference, I, intep- I attempted to pray in hopes of coming up with something intelligent to share at the conference, when nothing. God was silent. I was angry, and God was silent, which only made me more angry. Eventually, my default mechanism kicked in, and I just got on my bike. I began pedaling, thinking to myself, what am I going to do? I just have nothing to say. As I continued to ride, I remembered a creative exercise I once read about to help you connect with God. The goal was to close your eyes and imagine Judgment Day. Imagine the the great white throne, the sea of glass, the four and twenty elders that's all referenced in the book of Revelation chapters four and five. Now, everyone who's ever lived is gathered together in the Great Hall for final judgment. It's a massive sea of humanity that stretches beyond eyesight. And one by one, as each person's name is called, the great crowd of humanity parts to allow that person to step forward and approach Almighty God. Each individual stands before God all alone and looks at God right in the eye, eyeball to eyeball with God. So that's the way the exercise went. And as I continued through, I heard my name, the crowd parted, I walked up. And the first thing I saw when God looked at me is God looked away sort of uh, disappointed, not pleased. And then Jesus uh, got up off his throne and came and stood in front of me. And when God glanced back and looked at me through Jesus, God broke into a very warm, accepting smile. And I can remember thinking in my heart, is, is that what I really think of God, that God only loves me because of what Jesus did? And then I remembered, well, wait a minute, it was God's idea to send Jesus in the first place. God has always loved me. So I did the exercise again, closed my eyes again, imagine the great white throne, the four and twenty elders, the four living creatures hovering around. And this time, uh, when I walked forward to look into the face of God, what I saw, God had like a Mona Lisa smile. It, it was ambivalent. I didn't know if I amused God or if God was upset. Uh, and then I remembered thinking, well, is that what I think about God, that God is hot or cold, that I, that I don't know how God feels about me, that um, it's all ambivalent, and I just have to squirm in the uncertainty of it all. And so I thought, well, that's not quite right. Let me try it again. So a third time I closed my eyes, imagined the great white throne, and and what I saw this time liberated me in an incredible way. This time when I looked up into the face of God, I, I saw this huge beaming smile. I saw tears coming down God's face. And God grabbed Jesus and began to sing and dance and say it worked. Our son is home. We love our son, our son, Fred. It, it shook me to the core. And I realized in that moment, it didn't matter whether I lived in England or the United States. It didn't matter what I did for a job. God just loves me. With all the nonsense I get involved with and all, God just absolutely loves me. And that image, that picture so liberated me in that moment and and continues to influence so much of who i am and how i live and what i think and what i believe i can remember i was surprised by god's playfulness through this whole exercise it seemed as though god thoroughly enjoyed the whole exchange as if watching me to learn and understand more about god brought god joy I was surprised, too, at my own need to justify myself. I I had preached in so many places about how we can never earn God's love, but I realized that's exactly what I'd been trying to do, and I was unable to accept unmerited favor, grace, for myself. And so I suggest, what if God really does love you and me, just as we are? Imperfect, rebellious, bad theology, and all. What if our discovery that God really loves us brings God joy? What could we become, you and I, if we simply allowed God's loving acceptance, God's grace to overwhelm us? Thanks again for allowing me to join you on your journey through your life for these few moments. In conclusion, I'm going to share again that same quote I shared last week from John O'Donohue because I just think it's so wonderful and we can forget. John O'Donohue tells us, May your concept of God be feisty and imaginative and rich enough to incorporate all the hungers of your heart. And I would add this week, may God uh, guide you by grace, surround you with peace, and surprise you with joy.